Given what I've got to say will really cover the rest of the book of Acts, but I'm going to read from Acts 27. And so it says, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Hadramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already became dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they'd obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Coda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he told me. Nevertheless, 
we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed upon their rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lightboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You will need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the rope that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken in pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, to escape any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you that again we see in your word that you're a faithful God, that you're a God who keeps your promises, and that as your people are faithful to you, that you stand with them in every trial that they face. Lord, we ask, teach us from your word and give us faith. May our faith grow as we hear from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, many of you, I'm sure, probably know that that I'm known as not being the best of travellers. Now, coming from someone who was travelling on a plane from Sumbra in Shetland that was in stormy, stormy weather that day, got diverted to Inverness and then went on to Edinburgh with me ending up in a hospital wired to a heart monitor with a drip on my arm because I was that airsick. Well, that statement, thank you, that statement really does count as something of an understatement. But you know, still, despite all of that, still, I find the thought of going on a journey, a real journey, on a big plane, really exciting. Well, today, in a number of different ways, tonight, well, it's really all about journeys. For we finish 
tonight our journey through Acts, the thrilling story in Acts of the first chapter in the history of the church. I don't know if you've been counting, but let me tell you, I believe that this is the, the 24th sermon in this series. It's been a long journey. I don't know, maybe some of you are feeling a bit weary, but personally I would have to say that as a result of, of studying for this, I feel just myself enriched and encouraged because I've learned so much through the book of Acts, not just about Bible theory, but also about the practical spiritual reality of what church life, what Christian life is based on and what this should be about, what this should lead to as we live it out here and now as God intends. But tonight we also join with Paul here on his final journey in the book of Acts as he at last travels to Rome. For there's no doubt that that Paul, for a long time before this, had had an intense desire to visit Rome. As you read through his letter to the Romans, written just prior to this visit, you you certainly catch the the flavour of this kind of intensity of feeling. For example, in Romans 1, 9 and 10, I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the, may, the way may be open for me to come to you. And then Romans 15, 23. I have been longing for many years to see you. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Now, at one level, it was, it was quite natural for Paul to want to visit Rome. Almost any educated person in the world then would have wanted to visit Rome. For Rome was the the colossus that stood astride the world. A center of power and a center of culture. Ruling the world with its legions and its navies. Leaving the world awestruck with its circuses, with the lavish palaces of the Caesars, and with its temples and theaters, baths, etc., And, you know, a telling symbol, both of the the stature and, I suppose, of the ego of Rome, is surely found at the heart of the forum, which stood at the heart of the city. There was placed there a golden milestone. And from this milestone, roads radiated out from Rome in all directions to all parts of the empire, telling you exactly where the other great centers how far they were from the center of Rome. You see, for a Roman then, Rome really was the center of the world, the center of their universe. They didn't just say it, they didn't just joke about it, they really believed it. And Paul, although he was a Jew by birth and by culture, yet for some reason he had also inherited Roman citizenship. So understandably, Paul, even more than most men, he wanted to visit this city from whom he'd inherited the great privileges that came along with Roman citizenship. There was, though, a a much deeper, a much more significant reason, I believe, for Paul's intense desire here to visit Rome. That is that that he saw that Rome, that this, this great world center, 
that, that drew the inhabitants of the empire into it and with its road radiating out from it, he saw what a powerhouse Rome, the church in Rome, could be for the gospel. So he longed to visit the church there. He longed to be there to teach, to encourage and to fire them up. Which missionary zeal? He'd felt unable to do this, though, until he'd, he'd completed, he'd finished the, the pioneering work that God had given him in Greece and Turkey and, and in the area surrounding. However, now, with that over, with the foundations of the church now finally laid there, Paul felt led to continue this pioneering work, this time, though, in Spain, with that, his idea being to stop off on the way to Spain with the gifts he'd gathered for the needy church at Jerusalem, so go to Jerusalem, and then to go on and to stop off in Rome for the purpose, purposes with outline before moving on to that new work in Spain, having established a base in Rome. But as we saw recently, as we looked at this, things didn't quite work out the way Paul had intended. And so now he is off to Rome, but only after being arrested in Jerusalem, after undergoing a series of trials over a two-year period, and now here, traveling in chains to Rome for a final court appearance in the presence of Caesar. He's going then where he wanted to go. He's going where he felt led to go. But he's not going how he expected he would go. And we now are going to travel this, this journey with him. And I encourage you to, to pay attention as we go because I can assure you that this journey has lessons to teach each one of us about the journey we are traveling or we will travel in life. About what we can expect to encounter along the way and about how we should respond when perhaps things don't go our way. When things don't work out quite the way we hoped and expected they would. But before we move on to draw out the, the life lessons that I believe are to be found here, let's first just clear up the actual physical facts of this journey. So first, the facts. And that is quite simply just to say that the route that's taken here, as you, well, you probably looked at that map, hugging the coast, was just the, the, the kind of route that would be taken at this time because of the relative fragility of, of the, the ships that they sailed in. Also, the weather conditions that are described here with the north, east wind, etc., are again absolutely consistent with that area at that time of year right up to the present day. For in verse 9 it says, Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. Well, the fast was the Day of Atonement, which took place on October the 5th. Now you see, from the beginning of November to early spring, at that time, sailing then ceased in the Mediterranean. So here then, they were traveling on the edges, the very edges of the winter storms. And the practices that are described, such as using ropes, cables, to try and strap the, the ship together in the midst 
of the storm in verse 17. That again fits in with what history tells us was the practice of this time. In fact, in 1848, this whole story here was checked out by a James Smith of Jordan Hill, Renfrewshire. And James Smith was a soldier, a yachtsman, a geologist, a geographer. In fact, he was a a fellow of the Royal Society of Geography. He was a real Indiana Jones, I think, before anybody thought of Indiana Jones. But what he did was, he traced this route and he verified all the timings, how long it would take. He spent a winter in Malta. He studied the, the weather patterns of the Mediterranean. He studied navigation and seamanship in the ancient world. And his conclusion was that Acts 27 was the work of an eyewitness who was not a professional sailor. And this is what he said, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man not a sailor could have written a narrative of a sea journey so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation, unless they'd actually been there. Well, it doesn't look. The author of Acts, who was Paul's companion here, doesn't he fit the bill exactly? Those are the facts then, the literal facts, the physical facts of what Paul faced. Well, let's move on to look at the forces, the forces he was confronted by. And of course, what we're talking about here is first, the force, or if you want to put it, the power of nature. The force of nature that again and again in this incident seemed to threaten the life of Paul, one of the greatest servants of God. I just I wonder, would you expect that? Would you expect this to happen? Or would you maybe have expected God to have made the Mediterranean into something of a mill pond for Paul? You know, I think that's what a, a significant number of Christians would think. And if they were rewriting the story, reimagining it, then that's the way that it would be. Those Christians who think that in some way being a Christian safeguards us from accident and tragedy, disaster, or suffering. But you see, that's not the way it is. Rather, the facts are that, that nature, in the widest sense, nature is a gift of God, and nature works within the limits of the rules, the laws that have been established by God. Now, nature brings many benefits. Nature provides us so much, and its powers can at times be harnessed. The same wind that that blows a house down can be used to power a windmill. But you see, here's the real problem. When man sinned, nature was affected by the impact, by the implications of that sin. For you see, as man, by his rebellion against God, as each one of us, because of that rebellion, has fallen from the state of perfection God created us to enjoy, so too, nature has fallen. Nature is not what it was created to be anymore. And so nature then is wonderful. But it's not as it was created to be. And Paul, in Romans 8.32, I think, touches on this when he says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, throw into this mix 
throw into it the fact that, that man, that rebellious, sinful man, so often misuses and abuses nature, ignores the laws of nature. And also the fact that the, the devil, that the demonic powers seek to manipulate nature in order to drive mankind away from God. The book of Job is a great example of that. Well, then what you have, if you put it all together, is at times a pretty confusing situation where nature, so beautiful and usually so ordered and dependable, can become dark and threatening and at times far more. But here's the vital point. Very rarely does God ever intervene directly in, in nature. He does sometimes, but these interventions are what we call miracles, and they are by definition rare, even for his most faithful servant. What God does promise, though, what he promises is that as we turn to him, that in all our circumstances, whatever they might be, as we turn to him, by his sovereign power, he's able to take what comes into our lives and he's able to use it to bring growth, to bring blessing into our lives and also in order to use us to be a blessing to others. And above all, to help us to live no matter what's going on in life around us in such a way as to bring glory to God. That's surely part, at least, of what Romans 8.28, that famous verse, means. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And what he promises, though, is that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what life brings our way, be it tragedy or, or accident, disaster, whatever, that nothing, none of these things, not even death, can separate us from his love or can prevent him from fulfilling his purposes in us and through us. Romans 8 again, this time verse 38 and 39. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I believe it's this kind of understanding of God's relationship with nature that guides and, and informs Paul here in his attitudes and actions on this journey. For you see, he didn't want to continue on this journey, did he? Once he moved into the danger area time-wise, he didn't want to go any further. He didn't want to take any risks. He didn't want to you know, have that danger of being caught up in winter storms. As it says in verse 9 and 10, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives. And you see, Paul was a man of faith. We know that. He was a man who'd proved himself ready again and again to put his life on the line for the gospel. 
And he was a man who'd experienced miracles in his life. He was a man who'd been used as a channel through whose ministry God had worked miracles again and again. So if any man was qualified to say, just go ahead, I'm with you, it doesn't matter what happened, God will do a miracle. If any man was qualified to say that, Paul was. But as we saw recently in Acts, Paul never risked his life needlessly. He only put his life on the line when he was certain he was being led by God and when it was necessary for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. And you see, to do otherwise, to take risks, to put our lives in danger or the lives of others or, or say to work ourselves to the point of collapse when it's not necessary for the sake of God's glory or the gospel, to do that when we are not being led by God to do so, that is not faith. That's presumption. And I've seen it happen. Pride and foolishness being masqueraded as bold faith. And people then doing silly things. Getting in a mess, expecting God to get them out of the situation that they've got themselves in by miracle or any other way. And then when it doesn't seem to happen, complaining that they've been let down by God, that God has deserted them. I want to suggest that, that very often, it's not that God's left them. It's not that God's deserted them. It's that he's never been with them in what they're doing. They've been moving forward, but not in faith, but in presumption. The other force that Paul faced here is, is quite simply the force of circumstances. The fact that as a result of the, the opposition and interference by men that we looked at very much this morning, and as the result of the force of nature we see here, that things just weren't working out the way that he thought they should. You see, he believed he was being led by the Lord to go to Rome and to work for the gospel there. And yet here, he wasn't walking into Rome as a free man, free to serve the church. No, he was being dragged into Rome on the end of a chain as a prisoner. I wonder, have you ever had something of this kind of experience? You know, you've been trying to live your life to the best of your ability to please God trying to do and believing that you're doing that which he's called you to do. But things just aren't working out the way that you thought they would. And maybe you felt, maybe you feel a bit disillusioned by this. Maybe even you feel crushed. You feel like Given up. You feel as if you're confused and mixed up and you just can't go on anymore. You know, Paul here could so easily have been crushed. But he wasn't. Why? Well, because first I believe Paul had eyes that could see here. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, there was a point in this series of catastrophes when everything seemed lost. You know, the sailors had done everything they possibly could do, but nothing had worked. 
And finally, in the very midst of the storm, they gave up hope. They'd had enough. Everyone else in that boat had had enough. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. But it was then that Paul spoke of. Telling these sailors that, that in the night God had sent an angel. Telling him that he would stand trial before Caesar. Nothing would stop that. And that all who sailed with him would be saved. Now, the angel here is special. The angel's unusual. But the principle here behind what Paul says, I believe, is for all of us. That is that Paul... He had a hope that went beyond his visible, physical circumstances. And so because of that, he saw physically everything that everyone else saw. But he also, in addition, had the kind of spiritual perception that enabled him to see beyond these physical circumstances. And so to see, so to remember that he had a God who loved him. That he had a God who he was precious to, and that that God had a purpose for him. Now, we may not always be just as sure as to the precise task God has for us as Paul was here, but you know, I think we do all need to learn to ask God to help us to remember and to help us to see those much more important spiritual realities that lie behind the obvious physical circumstances of our lives, and to see that there's always a spiritual conflict going on. Always. And as Christians, we're involved in it. Always. Our lives are part of it. So let's ask God then to show us in the midst of the storm what He wants of us, how He wants us in particular to act and to be, and to remember above all, no matter how hard the wind blows, that we are precious to Him. We are loved. That our lives are held in the hands of a sovereign, all-powerful God who, as we trust Him, will work His purposes out in our lives. The other factor that I believe prevented Paul being crushed here is that he had a heart that believed. And here's just one example that, that demonstrates this for me just so clearly and powerfully. It's further on, even from that, that last incident. And they've been 14 days now in the storm. 14 days. Four hours enough for me in that plane, but 14 days. And because of a mixture probably of fear and misery and seasickness, they've all eaten very little. But now you see that they're near land. And everybody knows that in this ship, in these weather conditions, it's going to be, at the very least, a challenge in landing. And Paul, he knows that these men will need their physical strength. But even more, he knows that these men need hope. So he reminds them again of the promise that God had given that all of them would survive. And then he breaks bread, gives thanks to God, and begins to eat a meal. Verse 36 goes on. 
they were all encouraged, it says, and ate some food themselves. You see, Paul, by this act here, demonstrated faith. And it was this faith that enabled him to stand when it was so easy for him to be crushed. And it was the example of this transforming faith, of his life-changing faith, that then had such a, a profound impact on all who were around, on all who witnessed it. Do you know the wonderful thing is that when Paul eventually got to Rome, he was placed under a kind of, of house arrest that enabled him to be an influence on that church in Rome. In fact, probably a, a greater influence than he'd even hoped to be because they were as much influenced by his willingness to be imprisoned and to suffer, perhaps to die for the gospel, by that example, as they were by his teaching. But also, during his two years in prison in Rome, Paul had time apart as a prisoner that enabled him to write three of his wonderful letters, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. That's how he filled his time. And this is what John Stott says here of this. Was it not through this very confinement that his eyes were opened to see the victory of Christ and the fullness of life, power, and freedom which is given to those who belong to Christ? Paul's perspective was adjusted. His vision clarified and his witness enriched by his prison experience. You see, as Paul turned to God, then God, by his almighty power, was able to take the worst men could throw against Paul. He was able to take the worst nature could throw against Paul. The worst the powers of evil could throw against them. And use all of these to magnify his glory through Paul's life in a far greater way than Paul had ever imagined or had ever experienced before. My prayer tonight is that whatever life holds for each one of us, whatever our journey through life might be, that something of the same might be true of us. That to the end of our days, in the joys and the sorrows of life, that we might in ever-increasing ways, by the way that we live, reveal the life, the light, the glory of God at work in us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the incredible story of Paul, the incredible story of that first church. But Lord, we know that you want to write a new chapter through your people. And that you want our lives, the way that we live out our Christian faith, to tell a new story to the world around us. You want people to look at us and by our reaction to see in us something of Jesus and to be turned to him. Father, each one of us has a part to play. Help us to rely upon you. Help us to yield in our lives to you. Help us to seek you with all our hearts. 
that we might demonstrate your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to